month uh, gathering here. Uh, they just put up all these chairs to uh, make me feel humble. They, wanted me to, they felt I, that I needed to work on my humility, so they were like, oh yeah, you're not really that hot. So I was like, okay, thanks. No, uh, Jack Cornfield's doing a day long tomorrow. Uh, so, which is, actually, he's really, his day longs are really great, if you've ever done one. Um, I mean, they're crowded, we can see that, but they're, he's really a wonderful teacher if you've never sat with him. I'm sure many of you have. Um, so, uh, just, um, I'm just going to talk a little bit before we start to sit. So, or you can sit while I'm talking and ignore me. That you won't miss anything. But uh, I'd just like to say hi and uh, reflect a little bit. Here we are, the end of the year, so-called end of the year. It's not really, it doesn't end actually, it just keeps going around and around. But it's helpful to have these uh, uh, frames to to look at things. And um, and uh, particularly because you know because of the coincidence of the fact that there's twelve steps in twelve months it makes a nice uh, way to frame the different months. So uh, I love step twelve a lot, and uh, so I, I enjoy uh, getting to talk about this. Some of the other months, like August, like step eight, it's hard to like give a whole talk about making a list. Uh, just I find that difficult not my strength um, but uh, so 12 is nice um, but I, I just you know I know we all kind of feel the all the things in the air including the moisture in the air which is a blessing and um, and the sort of uh, just that sense of the year and the, and the light you know I think it's probably the light that really makes us most aware of the change and uh, the day's getting short and, and cool. And you know, I'm from the East Coast, so you know by this time of year it'd be, it'd be actually cold. Uh, I'm sure some of you have experienced that uh, from time to time. But uh, but still, it's interesting to me that even without that re- significant change in weather, that there's still like an emotional change that happens this time of year. And um, and uh, you know, I have. Uh, one of my screwy theories about uh, this time of year is like as children we had all these expectations that were never fulfilled and so it's traumatic for us. But uh, it might just be because the sun is further down on the horizon. But uh, whatever it is, um, this is the time of year when I used to get depressed, uh, like professionally. You know, it's like, okay, here we go. This is going to be good, you know. See how long we can sustain this. And it should be a few months, you know. Maybe I always figured that somehow my birthday's in March, and I always felt like, okay, around my birthday, things get better. Like, I, I kind of, uh, in my earlier deluded days, more deluded, I should say. I'm sure I'm so, still somewhat deluded. You know, I was very kind of interested in astrology in the kind of way that our generation, my generation, and those of you were that were like, oh, well, it must mean this, and this is happening because of that. Uh, I guess humans want to see connections. We want to make sense of things. Uh, and it doesn't really matter if what we're using to do that uh, has any validity. It's just like, okay, good. Because if we can have something to believe in, then uh, 
we're not as afraid of the world, which is a really scary place. And, you know, uh, and that we, there's so much we don't know and our, and our minds want to know. So we kind of like, we'll make stuff up. Like, oh yeah, the, 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 what's the, the Greek god that was born out of the side of his father's head? You know, just, we'll make stuff up about reality and, and then believe it because we'd rather believe something that doesn't make any sense than say, I don't know. Like, I don't know how the world started. I don't know how... It, no, we, it's not okay to not know. Anyway, um, to be a little bit more uh, practical, I will mention, and maybe I'll do this again later, but I'll mention a couple of events coming up on the 30th of December, which is a Sunday apparently. Uh, I'm doing a day-long retreat in this room. I don't think we're going to have as many chairs set up for that, but uh, we'll see. It's, it's going to be upstairs. It's going to be upstairs, so that we already know. That's what they think about me. More humility. That's, <laughs> thank you. It was suggested to me that if you want to come, like, register. Oh, yeah. It's a smaller I don't know if anybody heard what she said. She said it was suggested to her that if you want to come, you should register because they're putting it in a smaller place. So that makes no sense. But anyway, uh, it is not mine to control. Um, Keep coming back. Dharma, recovery, and renewal is the name of the day long. And I think it pretty much explains itself what what it's about. um, And then a retreat coming up in uh, April April 27th to May 4th, uh, which is a residential retreat, not here, uh, but all the information's on flyers, which are here, and there are some outside uh, by the books. So, that's enough of a warm-up. We're warm now, I hope. Let us uh, do some meditation. Just settling back into a comfortable posture, upright, relaxed, alert. And beginning by just letting the body soften. Relaxing the jaw, the Muscles in the face, the eyes. Relax the shoulders. Softening the belly. Just having a sense of Kind of letting go with the body, even as you hold the body upright. So it's depend on the spine to keep the posture while the muscles, the flesh, soften.
feeling the life of the body, the energy of the body. Letting the mind scan over the different points of sensation, like the hands and feet, the arms, the back, the legs, the face. just one of the things that we notice right away when we're withdrawing from the visual world and going inside is how alive the body is even at rest even in stillness sensations all over the body inside and outside. Being aware of sound, even in this quiet space, listening closely. Noticing what mood you're in. If there's some strong emotion present. Even when we're not noticing, there's some mood. Which is, always influences our thinking and our attitude. To be aware of that helps us to be less caught in the attitudes that are triggered by the mood.
finally coming to the breath. The breath moving in the body. Connecting with the sensations of breathing. Coming in close to feel the touch sensation of the air at the nostrils, the movement of belly rising and falling. the busy or agitated mind that we so often live with can have a hard time even feeling a whole breath. If the mind is slipping away from the breath, try to just move a little closer, really just connect with one breath in and out. Even if the thoughts continue to stream through, be aware of that touch. That subtle sensation, the movement, that rhythm. Sign of life. When you realize the attention is completely wandered into thinking that you're absorbed, 
And you can acknowledge that. We kind of see where the mind has been. And then come back, start again. There's no grading or score being kept in meditation. Notice if tension builds up in the body. See if you can, again, release that, soften. Is there a persistent thought that's tied up with the real-life problem. Just to understand that, understand the anxiety that keeps running the same thought over and over, not judging yourself or fighting with it. Coming back to the breath isn't an aggressive or aversive Movement. It's a gentle and kind movement. Inviting yourself to be present, calm.
stay with the changing energies. Taking care with drowsiness or restlessness. Reigning in the daydreams. When we try to find a balance, making an effort without causing more disturbance in the mind.
Okay, well, I'd um, just like to open it up for any questions, any particularly practice questions, if there are any. Andy has a mi- handy microphone. That, uh, so if anybody wanted to just uh, get the discussion started, with any kind of a comment or a question... There you go, right there in the front row, Andy. Hello. Hi. Hi, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the 12th step. Uh, uh, You said, could I speak about the 12th step? I'm going to do that. So I'm going to save that for after the break. Okay, thank you. Um, I'll talk about practice a little bit, though, if no one's going to ask a question, then we'll take a little break. But uh, as I, immediately after our last gathering in November, the next day I went off on a self-retreat for a week. And, um, and usually I go on one retreat a year. Uh, but, uh, and I'd been on a retreat in August, and it went so well I thought I'd do it again. Watch out about that kind of thinking. Uh, Turns out it's difficult to repeat experiences. So I had a very difficult, particularly first day. And it was really interesting afterwards to look back and go, wow, you know, I'm I'm a meditation teacher. And uh, I spent the whole day, it seemed like, you know, a lot of the day caught up in regrets and thinking about all the bad things I did before I got sober, mostly before I got sober. Um, And worrying about my karma. It's really unproductive, it turns out. But um, it's just so interesting how, how, um, no matter how steeped we are in practice, that, uh, that we can get lost, that the mind can kind of just take over. And, uh, you know, I, it, it, I, it was right when, you know, things were really smoky. And I was going down to Boulder Creek in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And and I was really anxious about, uh, like, doing a retreat with a lot of smoke. Like, I thought, like, this is going to be really difficult. Uh, and then I got there and there was no smoke in the mountains down there. So, uh, and the air was relatively fine but I just it, it, I could just see how it doesn't matter what sets you off you know all you need is something to set you off you know uh, and that's that's one of the reasons why I so often try to point people to noticing what emotions are going on when they're meditating and to notice because oftentimes our mind is running away but um, it's not really the content that's cap- that keeps it going. It's really the, the energetic feeling, the emotional energy behind it that kind of feeds it. And, and it's easy to miss that. So I think that really kind of set me off. So interesting to see. And, and, and partly I share that, I guess, just in the spirit of humility. 
one of my a theme, even though it's not a twelve step twelve theme. It's a it's a theme of recovery. Um, just uh, you know, if you if you think, oh, you know, that guy, he's a he's a teacher. He knows it all. I'm sure. You know, his meditations are all peaceful and uh, so interesting um, to see how uh, just the mind. You know, Wes Nisker has this silly line. He has a lot of really good lines. One of, the, one of his lines is, your mind has a mind of its own. And that kind of captures the, the experience. Like your mind, it's like, it's not, in, in other words, it's not your mind. It's not my mind. I'm not, if it were mine, it would be happy all the time, right? Very productive. It'd be brilliant. Uh, you know. And that, of course, that's, but that's, you know, uh, one of those things that kind of leaves, well, what does that mean, my mind isn't, my, oh, what am I supposed to do with that? What, like, whose mind is it, you know? Like, who is running it, right? Uh, and that's maybe one of the reasons people made up God. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just uh, life, right? I mean, we're... We think of ourselves as sort of being having some having control, and it's not that we don't have any control over anything. But uh, you know, I think that we have. I think that we think we have more control than we do, and that that uh, you know our 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 thoughts and our plans and all that stuff is like uh, stuff that we came up with. You know, when you start to watch your mind, and I mean, it just really, again, Wes uh, was really an important teacher for me. Still, he's actually a very good friend and still a, something of a mentor. But he has a great book called uh, Buddha's Nature. And it's kind of, and it, it's 20 years old, over than, more, more than 20 years old, but it, it was one of the first books to sort of address the science behind meditation and kind of getting at the, the evolutionary science behind our minds our, and seeing that much of what's driving us is just these evolutionary forces. We're just being swept along by this energy that, you know, wants to survive, right? I mean, that's kind of like the, the imperative for all living things is just to, to stay alive. And, and so the, the humans um, discovered uh, that their strongest survival mechanism was their thinking, whereas, you know, there are other, other animals that their strongest survival mechanism is like their poison or their horns or their hoofs or something, their speed, uh, their color. I mean, obviously, you know, all animals develop these different uh, things to survive. But for humans, it's our thinking. So that puts us in this, creates a problem when you try to meditate because your mind thinks that if you stop thinking, you're in danger. Right? That makes sense? That if, if, if 
what's required for survival is to think so that you can like, oh, what are the dangers here? I have to plan. I have to uh, remember. I have to always be on alert because uh, there's bigger, faster uh, predators out there. But I can outthink them. So I better keep thinking. So then somebody says, well, just stop thinking. And your mind's like, no, if I do that, I'll die. So that's kind of that, um, the, the energy, again, this vague term, but it, it's hard to find a more accurate one, that's kind of behind the, why, you know, here I am, I'm just at Spirit Rock, I'm doing nothing, and, you know, maybe there's nothing, no real big concerns in your life right now. It's like, oh, I forgot to blah, 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 blah. Uh, I mean, she really should go shopping tomorrow for the, 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 the you know, and, and it's like, why can't I just go say to myself, it's okay, relax, take a break. So that's the kind of theory behind that. I think it's a, a credible theory. It makes it makes uh, more sense than a lot of other theories about why we can't stop thinking. You know. Um, And, and I guess that is also why I draw people back to this kind of visceral sense, this felt sense, so that in some way we're kind of getting at that anxiety. You know, what is, what is that? To feel that primal kind of fear of letting go, of letting go of thinking. And, to, and that if you can just sit with that and hold that, uh, we do have this, capacity, you know, with the, the higher centers of the brain to, to kind of respond and to counteract uh, that kind of primal anxiety. So, well, let's take a little break and we'll come back and stop, talk about, I'm going to talk about one word in step 12, but we'll see where that goes. So we'll take a little break and there will be a bell in about 10 minutes.
Check, check, check.
All right. Um, okay. I was aware of my voice sounding a little scratchy. I've got that kind of almost got a cold, which is enough to. But uh, and it, it, I heard Sherrod Brown speaking the other day. Uh, he's a senator from Ohio, and he's probably going to run for president. And uh, he sounds like he was a blues singer at one time in his life. And I was like, you know, I like this guy's policies, but I don't think I could listen to his voice for like four years or eight years. I just don't think I can vote for him. Which may, I, That's a terrible reason to vote for someone. But uh, well, I don't know about that. I'm not going to enter. And I didn't didn't want to, you know, set off a, a further discussion. It turns out there's a conservative in the audience. Where I don't know where he went. Oh, yeah, he's just confessing his sins to me during the break. <laughs> um, so step twelve, and I'm not I, I'm not going to really address the whole step because. You know, I've been. This class has been going on for, like, probably going on a decade now. So, if I gave you the whole everything I knew about a step, like, then you wouldn't have to come next December. So, like, but uh, I, uh, you know, I was, I was thinking about the term spiritual awakening, and then, then just thinking about the word spiritual. Which uh, and then that reminded me that I I wrote something about the word spiritual in this book, which is my least uh, popular book. It's called The Burning Desire: Dharma God and the Path of Recovery, and it's probably my best book. the The connoisseurs agree with me that it is my best book, and that that's kind of the irony of the the artist and the author, the musician. My best album, nobody even likes it. Nobody buys it. The one that's sold is the one that's got all those cheesy hits on it. Um, not that my other books are cheesy. That was... <laughs> but through a combination of, of circumstances, I had a really good editor on this who's a novelist. Uh, and uh, anyway, so, and I'm not going to re- read from this. But I mention it partly because, uh, and the, the, the other irony, just to, you know, you don't won't care about this, but I'll tell you that after One Breath at a Time came out, like publishers are like a lot of people, they're kind of like stockbrokers. <laughs> buy high, sell low, right? So, after one breath at a time was relatively successful, then I got publishers to pay me more money for this book. So they paid me a whole lot more money, and they made nothing, and and because uh, it hasn't sold. So uh, so no matter how many copies uh, you buy, uh, it's not going to affect me because <laughs> I still owe the publisher like you know. You'd have to buy like 50,000 copies before. So I'm not trying to like make money when I tell you about this. I just I, I recommend this book. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and I don't 
you know, often recommend my own books unless I'm trying to make money. Uh, <laughs> which I am also doing that because, I mean, hell. Um, so, but what I did today was I kind of went, went through that section of the book and kind of reminded myself uh, about my take on this. And it, so just to start by reciting the step, step 12 says that uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, uh, we tried to carry this message to others, alcoholics and depending on the drug and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So there's three, I see it as having three portions. There's having the spiritual awakening portion, the carrying the message portion, and the uh, practicing the principles portion. And, and I may get into all, all of that, but, but just the word spiritual and spiritual awakening, uh, I think, a, a, a particularly spiritual awakening, I think is a very provocative term uh, in that it's almost like a promise of something. And, and I think because of that, because of the, uh, what I see as kind of confusion over, uh, I take it as confusion over the meaning of spiritual, then there can be this sense of either it's promising something exotic or amazing or, oh, it could never, that could never happen. You know, or I could never get that, or whatever your kind of relationship is to the this whole idea of a spiritual awakening. So, to start with, to talk about the word spiritual, uh, that and I'll say I, you know, I address this because, and and this book, Burning Desire, is really trying to talk about the the spirituality of recovery and the steps and try to make it accessible to someone who is somewhat alienated by either the word God or higher power or spiritual spirituality. Uh, it's kind of the, the um, t- sort of typical modern Western cynical science-based person who like, doesn't you know, uh, believe in all that woo-woo stuff. Um, and so uh, the book is really an attempt to say, no, it's not that. It's uh, what we're talking about is something very real and very practical, actually. And, and you can see it. And, and let me see if I can you know, help you to see it and so that you can use this process. You can engage in this process, this 12-step process that's been uh, so um, healing for so many people. So... There, it turns out that there are like five different elements to, to my definition of spiritual. And, and I'll say that I don't, don't mean to imply that this is the only way to think of the word spiritual or spirituality, but, but this is kind of my take on it. I'm sure there are other, other things that could be said about it. But the first, the first thing is about the word spiritual is that it's pointing to the idea that happiness doesn't come through the material world. I think that's like the key starting point that we recognize that particularly accumulating things and money or power 
in the uh, you know these worldly things does not bring happiness because that's the uh, thing that uh, society t- kind of tells us that's an underlying message is sometimes an overlying message uh, to much of uh, society and even education as well as certainly uh, advertising and the and economics is you know you need to have a lot of money and if you have money then you'll be happy. Um, so this is a really critical insight, uh, and it's one that people have at, at various times in their life. Sometimes people understand this at a very young age. Sometimes people have to accumulate a lot and then uh, suffer before they realize, oh, that, that didn't fix anything. And, of course, this is not to uh, uh, you know, trivialize the problems that come with actual poverty and, and real want. Uh, the, the, po- the point isn't that you don't need anything. <laughs> the point is that once you have your basic needs taken care of, accumulating more won't create more happiness. So uh, that's something that's been studied. You know, uh, but I don't think we have to study it to understand it. It's something that Really, I think even greedy people, <laughs> if you sit down with them and ask them, do you really think that making more money is going to make you more happy? You know, probably if they're in, a, you know, in any kind of a reflective mood, they will go, no, I don't really believe that, but I just have this, I just really want it, want it right? I mean, we're driven by these impulses. So having that, realization, though, that uh, happiness doesn't come through the material world completely changes how we orient our lives. It doesn't mean that we stop working or that we stop even being ambitious or even wanting to have comfort and, and even wealth, but that we don't see that as the answer. That's not where our main focus is ultimately and and so to to bring in the the question of addiction well addiction isn't about um, accumulating stuff it is about manipulating ourselves through material means if you will like drinking <laughs> is a way to make me feel good right it's that's you know, smoking this, you know, eating this, that's going to make me happy. If I could get enough, you know, I mean, I, I can certainly remember thinking, you know, if I just had enough really good pot, you know, everything would be good, you know. So uh, I, I think addiction, uh, again, is sort of a, an, an attempt to somehow satisfy our inner needs, our emotional needs, our spiritual needs, through a, a physical, mechanical process. That might be a stretch, but what I come up with. So the second element that I identify of spiritual or spirituality is the recognition that everything is interconnected. When we see that 
there is no such thing as an individual that none of us have, that none of us can either survive uh, as individuals, nor do we come out, uh, nor do, uh, do we create ourselves. And we start to see our, how connected we are with the rest of the world. This is another thing that completely changes how we relate to the world. I mean, one of the things it can do is actually make us feel more safe in a way. You know, that, that actually I'm part of something rather than I'm separate and I, and I have to just, you know, I'm uh, the, uh, a solitary figure that has to somehow struggle through the world. But that's not the first, I think, um, thing that comes out of this insight. The, hopefully, one of the first things that comes out of this is compassion. But maybe we need to be, uh, maybe it needs to be more clear how it is that we are interconnected, how everything is connected. So we, our bodies arise out of the joining of cells from two other people's bodies. I mean, that's weird and amazing. <laughs> and it just shows that, well, I didn't, create myself I'm to- the fact that I'm here is dependent on the fact that two other people decided to ha- do something together and you know my, my body arose out of that so right away you know but then we look at you know genetically you know how similar I mean humans are from like worms right it's like wow if we're similar to worms I mean how similar are we to each other you know and, and so we see we're really, again, not that unique. I remember uh, one of these weird like science facts when I was a kid. Uh, it was something like, every time you breathe, you're breathing in a thousand atoms that Michelangelo breathed, or something like that. That, that you know, we all are sharing this, uh, this atmosphere that we breathe from. And, and this is again probably a really silly insight but I'm never separate from air <laughs> okay I mean maybe that does maybe that's not a big deal but you know if you're thinking like oh I'm separate from the world it's like no you're always surrounded you're always completely in contact with the, the atmosphere with air and guess what? <laughs> if it weren't there, you would fall over and die a few moments later. You're completely dependent upon and interconnected with the air. You know, just the most basic thing. That, you know, just very quickly we're gone without that. And then forget about all, you know, everything else we're dependent on. But just to get into our interdependence in terms of the systems... When was the last time anybody here uh, went out and uh, you know shot an animal and and prepared it to eat? You know, all right, maybe you're vegetarian. So, you know, how much of the food that you ate today did you grow? You know, totally depend. I mean, we're dependent on a system. But even if you grow all your own food, you know. Can you make it grow? 
you know, you're dependent on the earth and the sky. I know this is this feels like maybe fourth grade, but probably first grade. But but I think we overlook these very simple ideas. So because the implications of our interconnection are vast, and they have uh, they have implications that have to do very much with our our. Uh, relationships with people around us, realizing how uh, how much we share and how much we all feel the same things, we all want the same things, and then it has social implications and political implications. You know, we know that like that's one of the things that divides uh, that divides kind of political stances. It's like, oh, everybody should be. Just take care of themselves. Everybody, and then other people who say no, we should. Everybody should be supported by the community. And and of course, there, there's all kinds of shadings in there to that that uh, have all kinds of you know implications. And but the and my point just being that this is the idea that we're interconnected is not just a spiritual idea. It turns out that spiritual and the idea of a spiritual awakening actually has social and ultimately political consequences. So the third thing is directly connected to the second. The third element of spirituality is uh, the... realization that uh, our behavior uh, basically affects others. So this is the basis for moral and ethical behavior. Because we realize we're interconnected, because we realize we're not operating alone, that what we do affects others, we, we find that one of the implications of that is that if we are selfish or cruel, that we harm others. And so uh, uh, the, with the compassion that arises with the understanding of interconnectedness, we realize, oh, it's important that I act kindly, that I behave morally, that I, that I don't harm other people. So uh, uh, one of the things that was coming up for me as I was reflecting on this today was I had a long conversation yesterday with a, a dear friend who's a young woman who's been very involved in uh, uh, Dharma punks and refuge recovery in uh, New York. And she's been very troubled by the, the problems and this, uh, I don't even like, the, the scandal isn't the right word, but the, you know, the, the coming to light of the uh, uh, behavior of the founder of those organizations and and um, and if you don't know about that you know in three seconds Mr. Google will tell you Mrs. Google Miss Google I don't know <laughs> I don't know why we have to genderize everything um, and and it, it that conversation was reminding me of, of what I see as one of my own spiritual awakenings, 
that a lot of us have been going through, a lot of men particularly. I don't think women needed to be uh, uh, awakened to this. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, uh, basically the Me Too movement, which, you know, that's realizing, oh, there's ways that I or other people have been harm, harming people that they didn't realize, maybe, uh, we'll, we'll give, give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, which is probably part of the problem, but anyway, uh, forgive me if I'm you know, not being accurate here, but my point being that, that spiritual awakening can also be an awakening to something that has these social implications. You know, waking up to, oh, everything is interconnected. Oh, I should take care of the environment. Right. Oh, so uh, you know, I go out in the woods and I feel this connection with the forest, you know, and that's beautiful and it feels spiritual. And I see, wow, a lot of the trees are dying. Like, why is that happening? And you know, so so uh, this is why spiritual awakening isn't just something that happens, you know, when you're floating a couple feet off the ground. That it happens right here on Earth. So the. The fourth piece, uh, and this really takes kind of another turn here uh, of spirituality, is fundamentally acceptance. So it's seeing the limits of our control of both internally, which we're talking about with meditation, and externally, which leads to acceptance. So, uh, if there, if I don't know what the opposite of spiritual is, I guess I would call it materialist. But the, in any case, the person who will, will, will create a straw per man, <laughs> a straw person uh, who, who is, uh, you know, not spiritual, and they are um, not accept. They don't accept their limits of control. So they're spending a lot of time and energy trying to control things that they can't control and creating more suffering for themselves. Uh, So one of the things that we learn through this process, uh, our spiritual practice, is, oh, there are limits to my control. It doesn't mean I'm passive, but there are limits, and that when I try to control things that I can't control, it actually creates suffering. So that's the serenity prayer, as I'm sure most of you know, if not all of you know. And then the fifth element is faith. And faith not in a religious sense, uh, not, not faith in something miraculous, but uh, I, I think even in more practical terms is to say maybe open-mindedness. You know? Because the, the, the straw man, uh, that person who isn't spiritual, <laughs> um, is cynical. Right and skeptical about uh, skeptical doubt is what the hindrance they talk about. Like uh, you know, isn't willing to explore, isn't willing to meditate, isn't willing to uh, ask these questions. Just sort of believes uh, this sort of uh, these messages that have been kind of conveyed and conditioned, and and doesn't really have an openness to sort of really uh, to ask ask these questions. Um, and, and then faith, uh, 
what I have here is faith in karma, uh, which means that you believe that actions have results, that actions have, uh, that there's a um, connection, and it's a, mor- a moral connection between our actions and the results that come out of them. Um, so, of course, we could say that goes back to the, the moral, ethical, you know, that's number three, <laughs> those keeping score. Um, and, and, it, and it has to do with interconnectedness as well. So, uh, naturally, as most spiritual principles do, they kind of loop back on each other. Um, But faith is also uh, the thing that gives us the willingness to take the next step into the unknown. You know, uh, that says, oh, yeah, I'll, I mean, we needed actually a certain amount of faith to go to an AA meeting or to, you know, to go to a refuge recovery meeting or to go into treatment. You know, we had to have some faith that um, this Situation we were putting ourselves into was going to be worth doing, you know. Because if you if you're like I don't think that's going to work, then you don't go, right? And it's the same with meditation. Well, those people they're weird, you know. They sit around, they're all like levitating, you know. I don't know what they're doing, Um, you know. And we create these ideas, right? These boxes that we put ourselves into. so in a sense, uh, I guess one of the biggest spiritual awakenings is this kind of trying to see what box I, I am in. And we're all, we're all living in some kind of framework, some way of viewing the world, of understanding the world, and interpreting the world. Um, and, you know, and I think that you know, intelligent people and engaged people uh, are trying to um, see what's true. I mean, it's kind of a, a basic principle, I think, of life. Most of us, we want what's really true. Uh, but, and if we really look at ourselves, we realize that our conditioning is so strong that uh, it's really hard for us to distinguish truth from belief, from conditioned belief. And so, uh, um, so, so we see how, you know, when a, when a new idea or a new perspective is brought forward, how some people will embrace that because it really speaks to them. And other people will fight it and rebel against it uh, because it challenges what they, what they already believe. Um, and, and of course, I mean, this could you know, be a description of the alcoholic before the addict before recovery is, well, I don't have a problem. Right? I mean, we're, that's the box that we live in as addicts that, you know, oh, this, this, is no, this is okay, this is normal. We normalize it by hanging around with people who are like us 
or by having a view about uh, those those other people. I mean, I can certainly remember thinking that someone who didn't drink, like, that that was really weird. And it was just like aberrant behavior, you know. Like, obviously there's something wrong with them. Like, what, what's their problem? Um, and so, you know, we create the, these, that framework and then hopefully, you know, with a moment of clarity, also known as a spiritual awakening, we see new perspective, right? Flash. You see reality differently. And, um, and then the possibility of change. So we can't untangle uh, a spiritual awakening from the way we live, thankfully. You know. In fact, if you have a spiritual awakening and it doesn't affect, affect the way you live, it's not really that useful, I don't think. It's okay, it's nice to have that, like, oh, feels good. But, um, but it's really what it does to us, which, which could be an argument for why the step is structured the way it is. You know, that it starts by saying, having had a spiritual awakening, but it doesn't say, having had a spiritual awakening, we just, like, meditated a lot, or we just, like, retired. Like, okay, I'm, I'm awake now. My work is done. No, it motivates us, inspires us to take this very specific action to be of service, to carry the message. Right? And then further... You know, to practice these principles in all our affairs, this kind of overarching statement about um, how we should uh, manifest this spiritual awakening, how we should really bring it uh, into the world. It's not meant to be something that we keep to ourselves very clearly. It's meant to be um, shared and uh, used as an as a, uh, inspiration for people as a motivation for us, and as a guideline for, for living. So those are some thoughts on spiritual and spirituality. I'd be happy to uh, hear your thoughts or questions about that. Hi. Uh, if you use the mic, it just they record this, so uh, people out and the sad people who don't live here. Hi, uh, my name is Tony, and I'm in recovery. And uh, when you mentioned the material, the spiritual over the material, and then questioning that person that is the greedy person that just wants more and more and then asking him or her if that really makes them happy and then you mentioned would they be reflective uh-huh. and I think am I asking too much <laughs> Yeah, I just think the spiritual awakening causes us to be reflective because yeah. I know before I um worked a program I wasn't reflective and I was self-absorbed in 
you know, it was either my way or the highway, and it was pretty much control. And and I think that I was in that box. Yeah. yeah. And um, the other thing that, that kind of uh, caught my ear uh, during your your share was the um, <coughs> being part of something. And I think there's a big difference between isolating and solitude and it's a balance and getting back out there yeah. and, 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 and living a principled life um, can, can, can hopefully give back mm-hmm. in, in a way of, of, of the 12 steps. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That that that, that um, insight into interconnection is also the motivator for um, fellowship, for for connecting with with people, and and you know it's interesting that. Uh, I worked uh, with and got to know this uh, addiction researcher, Alan Marlat, uh, passed away a few years ago. But um, and and a lot of his work uh, seemed to be, from what I read of it, it was very academic, and I couldn't absorb too much of it. But it seemed to be uh, trying to discredit some sort of fundamental twelve-step ideas. Um, and it was interesting. He was a very charming, really good guy, very open-minded in a lot of ways. And we we had a nice friendship, uh, even though clearly we had some philosophical disagreements. But one of the things he said to me is that, well, after we put people through, and he, he developed like a, a harm reduction, uh, uh, mindfulness relapse prevention program, he said, well, after people go through our program, uh, we tell them to go to AA because it turns out that social support is a really important part of sustaining recovery. It's just funny the way you know, an academic sort of turns this spiritual principle into some, like, oh, well, social support, like, rather than, you know, where we say fellowship or community or something. It's like, well, then he's got this sort of dry language for, for a term that's really about a spiritual thing, right? Being with others and being supported. But, um, but yeah, so even, even the sort of academic approach to addiction recognizes that uh, it's really not uh, a good idea to try to go alone on it. Uh oh. Oh, that was someone else got their hand up, so that's unfortunately. No, 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 please. Um, hi, Kevin. My name's Sean, and um, I think where I. what I get from just the, the words of having a, a spiritual experience of uh, coming from 12 step program and into um, now Buddhist philosophy of seeing the kind of just different languages, but really the, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, come from ACA and talk about inner child and then 
I associate that with um, just beginner's mind. And mm-hmm. for me, seeing newcomers come into to meetings for the length of time that I've been been in, um, I hear the stories that that I can relate to. And it being in recovery for a while, I see it from a different perspective. And and I see the 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 changes of that I I've come through. But hearing that again from a different perspective, I'm just reminded reminded of beginner's mind and to keep practicing. And had I not kept coming, I wouldn't have heard that same story again with just a new perspective. And for me, that's continually being in spiritual awakening. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It is remarkable how, um, how we can hear things uh, so differently over time and as we evolve. Um, you know, when, when someone says to me, oh, you gave me insight or something like that, uh, I, I might not tell them, sometimes I will tell them that that's not how I see it, but what, the way I see that is, you know, no, you were ready to hear that. You know, because, you know, the Dalai Lama could walk up to someone who wasn't ready to hear it and tell them the most profound thing, and they would be like, whatever, dude, you know, nice robes, you know. And, uh, you know, y- you, have to, you have to be ready to hear it. And so, so really, when you get it, when you hear someone say something and you think that they're telling you an insight, it's really they're taking you that next half step. You were like right there, ready to understand that. You ha- did all the preparation for it, and then they they got you over the next, the last step to to put it together. But you had to have already sort of known it in a way. It's just that they like put it into words. You know? That's one of the things I've noticed that when I started to practice and you know doing this meditation, this insight meditation, I was always like, okay, where are the insights? When are they coming? <laughs> and then, like, I would be reading a Dharma book, and I'd think, oh, yeah, I had that experience. And I, after a while, I realized that, that, and that's like, I'm talking about Joseph Goldstein's book called The Experience of Insight. It's like, there's two things. There's having an experience, and then there's understanding it. And, and you have to first have kind of gone through it before you can understand it. And, and some people who are more wise, uh, are, I think, are able to, like the Buddha, for instance, are able to like meditate and have the experience, and then they have their own, they understand it for themselves. But m- most of the rest of us need someone else to kind of point it out. But then we get it. You know, and it's because we've had the experience. So it's one of the reasons we practice meditation uh, and regularly so that you have a lot of different experiences and then eventually kind of it comes together. It's my take. But, you know. Yes? 
Uh, you spoke about the difference between beliefs and truth, and a belief is usually based on your perception of what experiences you have. So everyone has a different perception of what happens, so two people can have the same experience and then perceive something completely different and have totally different beliefs out of that yeah. same yeah. experience. Indeed. Um, and truth seems like eternal wisdom that's always right and always, it just resonates as truth. But for, what's the Buddhist perspective on being able to differentiate between your really strong beliefs which feel like your truth and eternal truths that are actually real wisdom and truth with a capital T? Basically, whatever you're thinking is just a belief. What the Buddha said is the truth. But uh, it, we could say that you know, a significant aspect of what we're doing with meditation is trying to penetrate that exact question. And we do it by observing our mind and, as well as our body and kind of watching what it does. And we watch how things arise like what triggers things and how things, how you let go of things. And you're kind of looking at this process and you're, and as well as the content. And, and there's this, and we're also kind of asking this question, is this true? Sort of as we're doing that. So a lot of things when questioned are become quite obviously not true are not 100% true. Like, I'm an idiot, right? Like, okay, that's not 100% true. There's sometimes when I do idiotic things, but that doesn't make me an idiot. You know, which, you know makes me feel a lot better about myself. But the, so we kind of start to look at and question what arises in the mind. And... Yeah, part of that shows you that you can't trust much of what shows up in your mind. But you kind of, there's this kind of uh, filtering and sifting in a way, I guess sifting is a good term for it, where eventually the things that are actually true kind of, you know, they kind of stick. And, and most of them are right there, as I said, in Buddhist teachings, very basic principles, like everything is impermanent. And, you know, uh, suffering arises through clinging. And self is a construction, and, and suffering arises through constructing self. And so you just sort of, so part of it is this kind of, that's one of the reasons why it's really valuable to study Dharma teachings, Buddhist teachings, particularly the teachings of the Buddha rather than all the people like me who talk about what he said. Um, and you kind of, you get some of that information and you, then you kind of are comparing your thinking and your experience with what you've read, what you've studied, and say, oh, yeah, right, I see, yeah, that is true, or, oh, yeah, right, that isn't right, that is a, you know, a delusion, and and so there's, it's really a process uh, of kind of sifting, if you will. Oh, yeah. Um, so here comes Andy. 
Um, I've been reading a book called The Untethered Soul, so it's a lot about observing. The Untethered Soul? The Untethered Soul. Who's that by? You know what? I knew you were going to ask that. I I couldn't tell It sounds like familiar (laughs) to me, but... Um, But it's a lot about witnessing the mind (laughs) and, you know, being able to realize, like, when it's the ego or the superego. And part of that, you know, I'm help, I'm kind of learning to listen more to my gut. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of been my lesson that's been showing up over and over is listening to my gut. And, you know, I've noticed a pretty strong denial. Like, it's not really a denial. It's more like how your mind can make things tell yourself a story that's more palatable than reality you know, and really just make up this story that's so much nicer to believe than the hardcore truth. Mm. And I'm realizing, wow, that's like not just the stuff like I did when I was drinking and using (laughs) that kind of denial. I can do it in sobriety. I can be in denial about the truth about a situation by telling myself this belief that I like better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And my daughter said today... um, (laughs) She was telling me how when we see something, she was explaining, um, she learned in school that when we see something, the eye actually sees it upside down. Oh, and that we actually flip it before we process it mm-hmm. um, because that makes us feel better. <laughs> and um, I just thought that was really interesting that we could, that our amazing body could see the image upside down and flip it. And I related it a lot to what the things the mind tells us. Everything is like this facade to make us feel better. And the truth is, if I listen to my gut, I know the truth years before mm-hmm. I figure out the truth. <laughs> mm. So just, yeah, I guess... I'd love to hear some thoughts on that. Oh my God, I don't know. I don't know what I can say about that. I think that's great. I, I was thinking that I don't think we flip it because it feels better. I think we flip it so that we won't like run into the wall. You know, kind of. I mean, I think it, you know, it has more like about function, but maybe. I know it made me think about. I don't know if anybody here watches The Good Place, but uh, you really, you know, were, the last episode, like somebody was like. On the, on the ceiling, <laughs> as, which is like not an uncommon thing in the good place. Anything can happen. But uh, anyway, wonderful show. Uh, probably the most bizarre thing that's ever been on television. But, uh, and, but I digress. Um, what were you saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I'm talking about things that make me feel good. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Because, uh, you know, a depressive does almost the opposite. We think up things that make us feel bad. You know, you're depressed and you just keep thinking things that make you feel bad. So there, it's not, I don't think, an entirely bad thing to think of things that make you feel good. Like to take a positive view of the world... But I, I presume you're kind of talking about like delusion rather than optimism, right? And uh, b- because uh, 
it's really easy to just take this really bleak view of the world. Uh, a lot of people particularly seem to be caught in that. And, it, you know, it's just a view, right? Um, and that we, we recognize, like, that we're going to have a view no matter what. You just can't not have a view, like a viewpoint. Like, okay, that's it. And I think part of what we want to do is like be able to shift viewpoints or take like, okay, what's it look like from somebody else's perspective? Because I want to be able to understand why they're behaving this way, even though I don't like it. You know, I, I don't want to just condemn it. I want to say, because if there's this principle of compassion and interconnection, one of the things about interconnection, and this is kind of one of Thich Nhat Hanh's themes, is that we all contain all this stuff. We all contain hatred. And we, you know, uh, uh, we all contain violence. And we, we all contain lust. Uh, and, um, you know, most of us are able to contain it, you know. But some people, uh, you know, it takes them over. And so, so to be able to see, oh, like somebody who's just driven by greed... Right, I understand that because, like, I really would like to have a lot of money, you know. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Um, so, yeah, um, but but yeah, it's also really important as you're pointing to for yourself that uh, that we don't sort of create this false reality that's uh, gonna always wind up being in conflict then with people who are like, come on, like, that's not the way it is. Like, you didn't pay the rent, you know. And so you can't just imagine that you paid it and think that you're not going to get evicted. It's just like, that's, I know, I'm not suggesting that you didn't pay the rent. But, but um, yeah, and, you know, it's, it's easy to, you know, to try to like, oh, yeah, well, I'm not going to worry about that. So, yeah. I mean, this is what, to me, is the, you know, this constant dance of this practice is like watching the mind and seeing what my beliefs are and where I'm falling into and what's cap- capturing me and, and uh, where I'm getting stuck and where I'm you know, walking into the wall because I didn't flip it over uh, properly. Um, you know, we... Uh, our sobriety is contingent upon the maintenance of our daily, our spiritual condition, the daily maintenance of our spiritual condition, something like that. And, uh, you know, not just our sobriety, like our, our, our uh, sanity, our happiness. Um, we have to maintain it. We have to do this work. And, um, that's what step 12 is. You know where it resolves. It's practicing these principles in all our affairs is saying that this is, uh, you know, again why I think that's there at at the having had a spiritual awakening would be so easy for people to kind of go, oh, now I can just uh, retire, spiritual retirement, you know, and the recognition know that there's this ongoing process and engagement uh, that is our work. The world keeps changing, and, it, and it, everything keeps changing around us. Um, and we have to keep like responding and you know, questioning where where we're responding from. So. Um,
Yeah, okay, we can fit in one more. We have about five minutes, but uh, I saw her first. Sorry. Why don't, why don't you begin? Well, before, uh, yeah. I'm Mila. Hi, I'm Joy. And my question is, do you think that addicts of all sorts, or whatever term you want to use, are actually afraid of awakening? And, because I'm going to be honest, awakening is not comfortable. It's not clean. It's pretty messy. And looking at the 12 steps, people say, oh, the fourth and the ninth. I think the 12th step actually is the most daunting. Because it's this realization, like, I have to do this. Like, you mentioned in your uh, book, uh, One Breath at a Time, orthopraxy, that, Mm -hmm. you know, recovery or Buddhism is not something that's based on doctrine. It's based on something. It's based on practice. And that's scary. The idea, it's like, I have to share this stuff. I have, yeah. It's like, well, now that I'm awake, I can't pretend I'm asleep anymore. Like, yeah. I didn't know. I wasn't there for class. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess my question is, do you think that people put off awakening because of the fear of feeling and seeing things as they are, the truth? Yes. Yeah, it's a really very wise question um, and a wise insight. Um, because step one is the biggest spiritual awakening, I think. Recognizing that you're an addict and that, you know, this whole thing that you've constructed has to come down. You know, that's why does it take us so long to get there? Well, because we're afraid of letting go. You know, we're afraid of, of what that it's going to look like. I mean, we built up that construction of addiction for a reason. And, it, you know, and, and even if we didn't build it up for a reason, eventually it becomes its own reason. That is, it, it, it feels like a protection. You know, we, we feel like, uh, and maybe a purpose. Uh, I mean, my, you know, I, I had one of my fears was, oh, life is going to be so boring. Like, as if I had this exciting life, you know. (laughs) That was so interesting, you know, fabulous. Um, But, yeah, absolutely, I think... um, I mean, you've got me thinking now, because, you know, the further implications of that uh, on a broader uh, level. I mean, just to say... Uh, again, kind of coming back to because it's such a so present and such a great example, the Me Too movement, which I don't even the term <laughs> movement, whatever, is stupid. But the the idea that oh shit, I'm I'm going to have to like you know behave differently, like or I'm going to have to like view myself differently, or I'm going to have to treat women differently. Uh, you know, and and that some people are going to be like, oh, screw that! They're just being blah blah blah. You know, and uh, they're just oversensitive or whatever. They don't get the joke, right? You know, uh, and the, the, because the of the fear of going, oh, like maybe I've been kind of you know looking at yourself and seeing that you're flawed or that you've like been kind of caught in like pretty. Uh, destructive, misogynistic view of the world, uh, that it's a lot easier to just go, no, like, and that's, is that fear? I don't, it's 
sort of fear, but it's definitely resistance to awakening, you know. So, yeah. So that leaves us one minute to uh, do our uh, closing. So let's just sit back for a moment. Everybody here is at a different point in their process of recovery. I hope that you're all stable and connected with your recovery. Just to make that commitment in this moment, reestablish that commitment to recovery. This time of year is such a high-risk time for relapse. So let us all commit to sustaining our recovery and our practice. And just to appreciate that we have this community to be with, that we are not alone, that we are connected. We are supported as well by this larger community of Spirit Rock. And then in the spirit of the 12th step that we can take what we have and share it with the world in whatever ways are available to us. May we be of service May our practice and our recovery help to heal the world from its wounds and pain. May all beings be free from suffering. For those of you who are in the East Bay, I just mentioned that uh, my usual fourth Tuesday lands on Christmas this year, and so we are not going to have a class at the monastery, but uh, that will start again in January. Otherwise, I hope to see you here on the 30th. Mm. Be well.